So several years ago, I was doing some work in Colorado, and I went to Boulder for a few days off, and I was visiting my brother-in-law and his wife, and they were working this particular day, so I was there by myself. I grabbed my backpack, uh, a good book that I was reading, some water and a snack, and I went hiking. I went hiking at the base of the Flatirons. Anyone know the Flatirons? It's these beautiful granite faces that come right out of the out of the foothills and um, sheer sheer cliffs. Beautiful, beautiful things. So I get up to the foot of the Flatirons. I'm above the tree line now, and I see these rock climbers. It's a it's a gorgeous October day, and. I am no rock climber, so I decided you know, I, should, I should turn back. But in between these, these cliffs, there are some valleys with boulders that have kind of fallen in. And I said, you know, I'm not a rock climber, but I bet I could, on all fours, kind of scurry up these boulders. And if you, just, if you know me at all, Corey's shaking her head, uh, you know that I just can't not go as high as I can. So I try and climb up these things, and then I find this shelf that's about 15 or 20 feet. And again, not a rock climber, but I decide, you know, I'm going to try and get up this thing. So I climb, and I get up to the top. Top, I feel really good about my skills and so I started reading my book and I'm there I have a nice snack in the warm October Sun and I take a nap and I awake to a thunderclap and you know how the weather is right in that area it's like what do they say in Denver if you don't like the weather wait five minutes because it's always changing and I look overhead and there's just black clouds and thunder rolling through and I realize I've got to get off this this little cleft and so um, for any, any of you who've ever gone beyond your skill level, you know the feeling that I felt when I was on my belly and I put my legs over the edge of that lip and didn't feel anything. And my heart starts racing and I get sweaty palms and I don't know what I'm going to do. So I lower myself to this great handhold and I'm thinking, okay, I know that that ground, it, the solid granite's right below me and so I slowly, and I'm fully extended now, I can't feel anything with my feet. And so I just hang there on this handhold, two hands. At first it was comforting, and then I realized this is not a good handhold. It's cutting my hands. It was so painful, but I, I couldn't let go. I was so afraid to let go because I, I didn't know where the bottom was. And so eventually I did what I had to do. I fell. Three inches. The ground was like right there, onto solid rock, onto safety. I was so focused on what was making me feel secure, even though it wasn't good for me, even though it was hurting me, even though it was cutting into my hands, that I just didn't trust what I knew to be true, that the solid rock was right there under me. In many ways, this wannabe rock climbing story is a parable for life. Uh, one of the ways that people describe the Christian life is a pilgrimage or a journey of us on a journey to becoming more and more like Jesus, right? As you know, life, pilgrimage, whatever you want to call it, is not without obstacles. Pain, stress, brokenness. And sometimes, you know, sometimes we're just living life, going with the flow, and it's great. We're on a hillside reading a book, taking naps, and the next minute, something comes up in life where we're hanging by a sharp handhold. The question is, what do we do in that situation? How do we cope with those circumstances? We all learn to cope with hardship, with pain and stress and brokenness. In some ways, are really positive and godly. We can lean on our, our, on our friends. We can pray. We can meditate on God's word to be encouraged through the Holy Spirit. We can have life-giving hobbies, like running or riding 165 miles to raise money for a, a cause. 
God in His graciousness has given us many wonderful and beautiful things in this world. But here's the problem. As human beings, we have a tendency to focus on those good gifts so much and obsess about them so much that the gifts become gods. They become idols in our lives. Now, as a church, we've been journeying through different psalms all summer long. In fact, sadly, this is our last week in the psalms. Excitedly, next week we get to go to Genesis, so it's a mixed bag, right? We've looked at psalms that deal with confidence. We've, We've looked at psalms that deal with worship. We've looked at psalms that deal with tragedy, like psalms of lament. And this evening we're going to look at a psalm that reminds us of God's trustworthiness, of His goodness, even in the midst of trial. And that psalm is 121. Would you stand as we read that, please? I will lift my eyes up to the mountains. From where shall my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to slip. He who keeps you will will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not smite you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will protect you from all evil. He will keep your soul. The Lord will guard your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forever. Father, this is an incredible word, encouraging through and through, but very difficult for us to fully grasp and to believe in our bones. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would take this mere information and that you would help us to believe it and to live it and to trust you, for you are good. Amen. So before we dive into the text, just a little bit of a, a little bit of background. Psalm 121 is what's known as a psalm of ascent. In the Psalms, 150 altogether, right? There are 15 psalms of ascent. They are Psalm 120 through 134. And many scholars believe that these psalms of ascent were a canon within the canon, a group of songs that Jewish pilgrims would sing on their way up to Jerusalem for the three major festivals each year. So not everyone lived in Jerusalem, right? They would live in outlying areas. Some would travel over a hundred miles to come to these festivals. And they would sing these songs together to encourage one another, to remind them of who God is, to remind them of why on earth they would be leaving their jobs and all this stuff to, to go on these pilgrimages. As we look through Psalm 121, I'm going to encourage us to look at the psalm through two sets of eyes. First of all, we're going to look at it through the set of eyes of the typical Jewish pilgrim, the ones who are originally singing these songs. Second, I want us to look at this psalm through our own sets of eyes as people who live in Bellingham, Washington in 2010. What does this have to do with us? I will lift my eyes up to the mountains. From where shall my help come? The weary travelers had to walk through rocky, mountainous terrain in order to reach Jerusalem. Jerusalem is about 2,500 feet roughly above sea level. 
the travelers would have come, no matter what direction, they would have had to go up. And they would have gone uh, through valleys and seen these different high places, different mountaintops. And on these mountaintops were shrines to different pagan gods. One might be a shrine to the moon god, and one to the sun god, one to Baal, one to this god, and one to that god. And what you could do is you could go up there and give money to offer a sacrifice, or you could pay money and sleep with a prostitute. And supposedly by doing these things, it would... It would it, Ask that God to say, if it was the sun god shrine, it would be buying protection from the sun's heat. Or if it was the fertility god shrine, it could uh, coerce that god into taking care of your crops that you left back home so you could go on this pilgrimage, right? So as the Jewish pilgrims are going through these mountains, they're surrounded by these different options. Now in times of stress and danger, it was always a temptation to turn to one of these shrines. Now obviously these, these travelers, these Jewish travelers, were going to Jerusalem to worship Yahweh, the one true God. And if you were to ask these Jewish people on, in Sunday school, or, or I guess they would have had Saturday school, if you would ask them on Saturday school, do you believe in one God or multiple gods? They would have all given you the Saturday school answer and said, no, we just believe in Yahweh, the one true God. But you know how this works out, don't you? This is a tough time in my life. And, you know, I'm walking down this road and there's all these perils and it doesn't seem like Yahweh is very present all the time. I don't really believe in other gods, but, you know, I just want to cover my bases. It's kind of like diversifying your religious account or something. I mean, come on, be honest. We find ourselves all compromising and doing this from time to time. What shrines or alternative gods do we turn to when trouble presents itself. You know, the reason I bring up these stressful situations is because it's under stress, it's under trial, that idols in our life bear their ugly heads. So a good diagnostic might be to ask this question. When I'm stressed out, I simply can't live without... fill in the blank. If your answer is not God, <laughs> then, then you might want to... To look at what that means. Here's some examples. We can turn to substances, right? Good old alcohol. Alcohol's not a bad thing. I quite enjoy it myself, but too much or for the wrong reasons. If I'm turning to alcohol to meet some need when I'm in trouble, that might be a symptom of a bigger issue. Drugs. Food. Food is a substance that uh, many of us abuse. We can turn to protective attitudes, okay? So under stress or uh, trial in our life, anger is a big attitude that some of us can have, right? And anger, what that is, is, is an expression of our control. So if you've ever really, you know, you've been in like a board meeting or some kind of group setting and there's always that one overbearing, really powerful person who is exerting their anger, that's usually because they're insecure, they're not sure about their setting and so they're trying to exert their power, it's a way of controlling, of feeling better. Same thing with the manipulating and lying. There's the overachiever on the one hand, right? We all know the overachiever. And uh, trying to gain control. If I just get everything organized in life, I can reduce the variables and then I can make a pie chart and my life will be perfect. And then there's the complete opposite of the overachiever. There's the passive person, like... Um, Big Lebowski, the dude. The dude just lets life come. 
right? And, and it just lets it kind of, kind of go through. And the overachiever and the dude, they usually don't like each other, but I'm just saying. Um, but we can turn to different behaviors, right? Like improper uh, sexual relationships, whether that's outside of wedlock or not even with a real person, but something you see on the internet or in a magazine. There's escapism. We can escape through movies and video games, and I love movies and video games. And you know what I mean when I'm saying that those things can become idols when we completely live in a different reality. Right? I'm not going to stop playing my FIFA 2010 because my team's really good. We can rely on other sources of power in times of trouble besides God. Okay, so one of the sources of power that's really popular today is technology. Technology. We're talking about this at small group, and I thought Matt had a great insight that in the old days, very, you know, middle ages, uh, magic, people would turn to magicians to exert their power. You know what magic, really, the definition is, 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 a, is a way to manipulate nature. So you would go to a magician to turn rocks into gold, that's more of an alchemist, but you, you could ask a magician to help help you control your setting. Well, now we have technology to do that. You know, I can be on my iPhone right now, and I can get... The Mariners won Felix. Again, I'm thinking Cy Young. Uh, you know, I can get any information that you want. I can control my home stereo system at home with this. And it makes me feel like I, I'm more powerful. I, iPad, uh, computers, all of these things can... Um, we can turn to these types of things first. I struggle in the morning with, do I read my Bible first or do I check my iPhone first? Okay, And some of you can resonate with that. Another source of power we can turn to is Americanism. Americanism. Hey, I love America. I served seven years in the Coast Guard. I, I think it's a great country. Lots of opportunities here. The problem is when we look at our country as, as the source of power and security instead of the living God. Also with Americanism comes a sense of entitlement, doesn't it? Where else do you have a right to the pursuit of happiness? And I'm all for happiness, but that is not necessarily a biblical right that you and I have. Especially when so often our happiness has to do with buying cheap products that are built on the backs of people who are oppressed in other places. That's a whole other can of worms. We can rely on other sources of power like ourselves. That's why Oprah is so popular, because every week she has a different self-help person that can help you figure it out yourself. But obviously that's not working very well, because she has a different one like every day, and none of them... Anyway, it doesn't work out. But this psalm is asking us, will the people of God turn to the mountaintops, to alternate power, to substances, to behaviors... And the psalmist has the answer. No. No. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And if you're following along in the text, look at the word Lord there. It's in all capital letters. L-O-R-D. All capitalized. When you see that in the Old Testament, what that means is that is Yahweh underneath that. The personal name of God. And Yahweh has to do with this covenant-keeping God who always keeps His promises, who is trustworthy. So look in that psalm how the psalmist is referring. He doesn't just use the generic God all the time. He uses this personal name of God. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. There's no challenge that the Lord cannot help us with. The mountains are intimidating. Well, he actually made those. He spoke them into existence. Is the sun oppressive? 
Well, he made that too. The, the, does the moon strike fear into us, like the psalmist says? Well, he owns that. Is the terrain treacherous? Well, he is the living God who made heaven and earth. He made our feet and the pebbles that we slip on. He can deliver us. From where shall my help come from? Is the living God enough? Psalm 121 reminds the weary traveler, yes. The living God is enough. Notice the emphasis in the psalm is not about problems. It's not about your problems. It's not about the people's problems in the psalm. It's about the God who delivers us. The emphasis is not on what to do, but what He has done and what He does. You know, before we even walk through these doors for worship, we're probably already aware of some of the idols in our lives, right? What we need is not more good advice. We need more good news. More assurance that we can trust this God with our pain and our frustrations and our sorrows instead of turning to other harmful ways of dealing with life. Now, in the text, you'll notice that from this point forward, the word keep guard and protect is used six different times. There is only one Hebrew word that's behind those three words, keep, guard, protect. And it's so multifaceted that the English translators had a problem finding an English word that could represent it, which is why you get three different words there. Keep, guard, and protect. Six times we're reminded that our God is one who can keep, guard, and protect us. He will not allow your foot to slip. He who keeps you will never slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. You know, before the Roman Empire built all their massive and incredible road systems, the way you would travel to Jerusalem or any place in the ancient Near East was through just simple, single-lane footpaths. So you're out there with a small group of travelers. You always travel with others, though. Maybe you have a, a pack animal for some of your, your tent and, and some food. But you've got generations of people in your family. You've got little ones. I mean, I imagine doing this with my kids, Sophia and Stella. And then it would be me. And you lived with your extended family too. So it would be my parents and maybe grandparents if they're around. So you could have four generations of people going on these pilgrimages. You're in the middle of the wilderness. No fancy roads. You've got bandits. You've got uh, physical terrain issues. You sprain your ankle, and you're the man of the house or something like that, or the adult keeping track of the kids, you're in some serious trouble. You break a leg out there, there's no medevac to come get you, there's no hospital nearby. You're in some serious trouble. So, this psalm, when it talks about, He will not allow your foot to slip, this is a very practical prayer. This is just like you and I praying for maybe traveling mercies when we go on a road trip, okay? Very practical. Also, unlike the gods of the mountaintops, God does not sleep. The, you know, the, one of the major jobs of the pagan priests on those shrines on the hilltops and the prostitutes, you know what they were doing that for? Well, I know what they were really doing that for, but what they said they were doing those things for was to wake up their gods. They would dance around and chant hysterically. They would actually cut themselves and poke each other with swords so that their gods would somehow pay attention to them and wake up. And this, this is making us a, a, a think here at the top of Mount Carmel. 
in the in the book of Second Kings where uh, Elijah is up there representing Yahweh, and then he calls 450 of these prophets of Baal. He says, "Okay, we're going to make two shrines here. We're going to make two altars." put meat on it on top of wood. He says, you guys call out to your God, Baal, and see if he can start the fire. And there's 450 prophets of Baal dancing around. And, and the scriptures even said that they're cutting each other to try and get their God's attention. And there's this great line in there where Elijah, I can just see him like kick him back. And he says, what's the matter? Is your God asleep? Because in, in the, it was believed that those gods would get drunk, that they would have orgies with other gods, that they would completely forget about their people, and you would have to wake them up. You'd have to get their attention. So that, while it's poking fun at that, it's also saying, remember, your God, Yahweh, is not like that. He is always awake. He's always aware of who you are and what's going on in your life. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not smite you by day, nor the moon by night. Again, in a way, this is a very practical thing to pray. In that part of the world, the sun was a danger. In fact, most people traveled at night or at dusk, from dusk till dawn, because of just the heat. And so... It's asking for help from the sun. Also, medical texts from ancient Babylon and Assyria have these uh, symptoms that are much like epilepsy that they attribute to none other than the moon god, Sin. And so they believe that the moon, like too much exposure to the moon's rays could cause epilepsy, and they believed it could cause insanity, which is where we get our, our words moonstruck and lunatic. That's, that's where that comes from, that old wives' tale. So, in a way, this is like a real prayer of protection. That God, God will not let the sun harm you or the moon. But more deeply, what this is about is there is no time, day or night, when the sun's up or the moon is out, that God is not watching and able to help. It encompasses a complete day, every situation. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not smite you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will protect you from all evil. He will keep your soul. The Lord will guard your going out and your coming forth from this time forth and forever. Before we got to that verse, everything was in the present tense. And it almost sounds like... It almost sounds like some kind of... A prosperity doctrine or something like that. It almost sounds like, hey, nothing is going to ever happen to you. The God's always there protecting you, and He's there in the sun, and He's there in the moon, and everything's fine. He's not going to allow your foot to slip. Two things guard us against that. First of all, the very fact that this psalm exists tells us that people ne- needed to sing it, which tells me that they had problems. Okay, It's the same as when uh, the Apostle Paul is writing about uh, like morality, and he's talking about how we should live, and he gives us all these grand visions of how we should live in Christ. Well, he wouldn't have had to write those letters if people were already living that way, right? So um, the fact that the psalm exists tells us that there is expected trouble in life. The other thing is that this last verse now switches tense to the future. So now the Lord will protect you from all evil. He will keep your soul. The Lord will guard your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forever. It's talking about expectation that there's going to be problems and that God will be there to meet those problems with you. It's good news. 
we're going to face further struggles. Evil will come our way. And it's going to, it's going to hurt us at times. The promise is never to avoid pain. But it does promise at least two things. First of all, God walks with us through our pain and struggles. He walks with us through our pain and struggles. I've said this before, but you know the word comfort means come, Latin for with, fort, short for fortitude. He is with us. His comfort is with us with strength. He walks with us. We're never alone in those things. And the second thing is that all of our pain, all the things that we go through, even the things that we sometimes cause because of our own sin, all of that is redeemable. Romans 8.28, For God works all things for the good of those who love Him, who are called according to His purpose. And also, I'm thinking of the story of Joseph. This guy who gets sold into slavery, left for dead, falsely accused of improper relationships with Potiphar's wife, gets thrown in prison, all of the stuff in his life. He finally meets his brothers back up, and what does he say? What you meant for evil, God meant for good. God will not let evil have the last word. And that's a God we can trust. I said in the beginning we were going to look at this psalm through two sets of eyes. We've kind of looked at some of the ways that the pilgrims would have interpreted this, what it meant to them. We've looked at some of the ways that we can have our own idols and some of the things that we can turn to. But I want to introduce a third set of eyes that I didn't mention before. And that's Jesus' set of eyes. You see... Jesus would have sung these psalms of ascent when he was growing up, when he was a young man going to Jerusalem for the festivals. He would have sung these psalms together with his family and his, uh, his village as he was going in, in the Gospel of Luke when he goes in and he's 12 years old and he's in the temple. And Jesus would have sung these types of psalms on his way to Jerusalem, Jerusalem that last time when he knew the cross was before him. If anyone ever knew a thing about evil and troubles, it was Jesus. And just think about the encouragement that a psalm like this could have given him as he's making that last pilgrimage to Jerusalem. He knew that evil, evil would strike his heel, but it would not have the last word. Know this then, brothers and sisters, that our Father in heaven the Son and the Spirit live and there is no amount of evil or tragedy or ill or sufferings that will have the last word in your life at times we might cling to idols alternatives to God just like that handheld that cuts our hands we know it's not good for us but we just keep holding on and I think the call of this psalm is to let go of our idols so that we can cling to the only one who can truly rescue us Jesus the life giver do you join me in prayer Lord we thank you for this word this word of encouragement word of reminder that first of all Encountering trials and hard times is not something unexpected. It's not caused because we've done something wrong 
or necessarily because you're mad. It's part of living in a fallen world. It's part of being a sinful human. And I thank you that you haven't left us out to dry, but you remind us in this psalm that you are with us, and there is never a time when you're sleeping and not paying attention. And thank you most of all that every ounce of our life is redeemable and protected and saved through faith in you. I pray that you would release trust. Help us to believe that to our core.